If you will, open your Bibles to Lamentations chapter 3. So Brody got us started last week. He gave his exhortation from this very chapter and um, spent a lot of the week meditating on this passage. And then Matt refused to get better. David got jealous, so he got sick too. Made it hard for them to really prepare and study. And then Josh is getting ready for his annual baby. So we didn't feel like it was a good idea to have him and uh, preaching this morning. So you're stuck with the D team. Um, and I tried to get my mind to go elsewhere. But here we are, Lamentations 3. I think at some point we've all uh, been in that position where life just hits hard, where everything seems to be going against you. You know, you got um, a lost loved one, someone that you care for dies. Maybe you've got uh, all the financial burdens. It seems like there are seasons where you can't do anything right financially. So it's just pressing down on you. Family life gets hard. Your husband's a jerk. Your wife's rude. Whatever the case may be. You've got to deal with the in-laws. But there's just so much pressure. I think at some point we've all been in that position. Where we feel like we're just hanging on by a thread. And it's not always the easily observable difficulty. Sometimes it's internal. Sometimes, you know, we're struggling uh, with, with our own thought patterns. Maybe we're wrestling with depression or, or melancholy moods or, or some sort of spiritual struggle. Whatever it is, whether it's external, everyone can see it, or it's internal, no one knows what's going on. When we're in that position... You feel like you're barely hanging on. What makes all of that worse is that everyone around you just goes on with their lives. Have you noticed that? Jerry, have you noticed that when you're in that hard spot, everyone else, they have the audacity to just go on about their lives. And they're they're not worried about the things that you're worried about. That... I think at some point, to some degree, we've all been in that position. When it comes to those seasons, where do we turn? What is our hope? What is a realistic expectation for how to handle that? If only the Bible gave us answers. Gives us something that would stabilize us and strengthen us. During difficult times. It comes as no surprise at all that it does exactly that. And not just in this one passage, but throughout Scripture, we're told how to handle those dark days, those trying times. But here this morning, we're going to look at a 2,500-year-old dirge, a funeral song, a lament. 
that shows us in the worst of times that you've never even fathomed the answer that you don't want to hear is the answer that you need to hear. We don't want to hear that the answer is theological, do we? We want to hear that the answer is practical. Do these things. Change this mentality. But that's not what Scripture tells us. Over and over again, we're told that the answer to our difficulties, the hope in the midst of our trials and our strife, is not merely practical, it's better, it's theological. It grounds us in reality. This is where Brody took us last week, and we'll be here this morning, where Jeremiah is writing this lament in the heat of Babylonian captivity. Jerusalem has been sacked after a long and grueling siege in which the people were starved to death to such a degree that cannibalism was not only on the table, it was a viable option. Eating and drinking your own filth and feces. This was the situation that Jeremiah was in. This is the heartache that he's experiencing. And, and he encapsulates suffering, genuine suffering, on a personal and corporate level so perfectly. In chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Is it nothing to you, all who pass by? Look and see. Is there any sorrow like my sorrow, which is brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of His fierce anger? Chapter 1, he begins and he's, he's, he's describing, he's speaking for the city as the poet. And he's saying, our plight has been terrible. And y'all are just acting like it's a normal Tuesday. Don't you see what we're going through? How can you go on with life like normal? We're dying here. And you've said that. You've experienced that. You've never been where Jeremiah was, but you have been there where you've looked around and you've said, People, I'm hurting. Why is no one acknowledging this? No one understands the depths of my pain. And as you go through this sermon this morning, you'll even be tempted to say, no, 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 you don't understand what I'm going through. And I would refer you back to Lamentations 1.12. You're not alone. You're not the first person to think that. And you're not the first person to need to be corrected for that thinking. And you won't be the last. Lamentations is a remarkable book. It's built in a very tightly organized poetic structure. And I'm going to thrill you to death this morning because structure in Lamentations matters. It matters so much because it informs and enlightens the text. It tells us exactly where our attention should be. It is an acrostic from first to last. So every verse of every chapter starts with a particular letter of the Hebrew alphabet. 
there are 22 letters. You'll notice in chapter 1 that there are 22 verses. In chapter 2, there are 22 verses. That's because every line, every verse begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. If it were in English, there would be 26 verses. They would start with A, then B. Can you guess the next one? That's tough, isn't it? It's C. You'll get there. A, B, C. We would go from A to Z. 22 verses in chapters 1 and 2 of three lined poetry. It's three lines of poetry. It's tightly wound. And when you think of poetry, you're thinking of rhyming, aren't you? Because a good poem rhymes. All those other highfalutin poems that don't rhyme, I don't understand those. But the good poems, they rhyme, right? Cat and hat, that's magic right there. But Hebrew poetry doesn't care about rhyming. Hebrew poetry is about parallelism. Okay? And all different forms of parallelism. Synonymous, antithetical, synthetic, doesn't matter. They're all structured on parallelism. So these, these verses that you see in Lamentations are tightly woven Hebrew parallelisms. So in verse 1 of chapter 1, you have a parallelism that begins with Aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And in uh, chapter, or verse 22 of chapter 1, you have three lines of Hebrew parallelism that begin with Tav, the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But what is unique here about Lamentations and about the structure is that there is embedded in the structure a decaying chaos within the structure. Those first two chapters are so tightly wound that when you get to chapter 3, it shocks your system because no longer do you have a three-lined parallelism of 22 verses as we would see it, but we have 66 verses of three individual lines that go Aleph, 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 Bait, 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 so A, 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 B, 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 all right? And you're thinking, man... This is the most boring thing I've ever heard in my life. Don't wait. Don't worry. It gets more boring before it gets better. Okay? So we're doing this poetry. And uh, what Jeremiah does is he starts with this structure that's really tight. And then he changes the structure. Now, when you're reading scripture and you notice a tightly wound structure that, ran, that suddenly changes course, what should you do? You should pay attention, shouldn't you? Because the author is trying to show you something. Something takes place in chapter 3 that indicates that what happens in chapter 3, what is said in chapter 3, is central to the entirety of the book. In chapter 4, he picks back up with the multi-lined parallelisms. But there's decay in the structure. So instead of three lines, there's only two lines. Again, Aleph, Aleph, Bait, Bait, goes all the way down. But then in chapter 5, the wheels have come off. No longer is an acrostic. It's 22 verses like you would expect it to be, 22 lines like you would expect it to be. But the acrostic, the poetic structure, has dissolved. You're thinking, what in the world does that have to do with anything that I'm experiencing in my life and my struggles, my suffering. I'm so glad you asked because I think there are five things that just looking at the structure, five things looking at the structure that we can learn and apply to our lives real quick. First, God's judgment 
is complete in its scope and purpose. This is a lament over the judgment of God against the people of God. The judgment goes from Aleph to Tav. Or as we would say it, the judgment goes from A to Z. It's complete from beginning to end. God's judgment is complete. There is no aspect of Israel's existence that has not been judged. Go back. Go back and read Ezekiel. Go back and read Daniel. Go back and read Jeremiah and Isaiah. And look at the scope of the promised judgment that is coming. And then look at the historical documentation of the scope of the judgment that took place on Israel. It's total. From A to Z, it's complete. So that judgment is not lacking. It's not incomplete. This is a severe, this is a violent judgment that has come upon the people of Israel. It is catastrophic. It is total in its scope and its purpose. But it's not just that the judgment goes from A to Z, from Aleph to Tav, but that within that judgment... There is structure, there is order, because God is present and active in the midst of His judgments. That God is judging the people of Israel. He has judged and is currently still judging that people when Jeremiah writes the lamentation. But He's present in His judging. He's present in His uh, rebuke against them. Next you can see that even in the chaos... As the structure decays, even in the chaos of that moment. Now, try to put yourself in that moment in Israel's history. You've just walked through a long siege. Starvation has been uh, rampant. Everyone has died around you. The city that you've loved, the temple that you've cherished is all now rubble. And you're in a cart being drugged to Babylon, where you will spend the rest of your days in captivity. That is absolute chaos. And Jeremiah is trying to reflect that chaos, that developing chaos in the structure of this book. But even in that chaos, there is structure. There is security. Because God himself has established this chaos. God has established this destruction that is taking place. We can look at the structure and just by the structure, we can see the intensification of the message. Again, I said chapter 3 tells us, it screams to us, pay attention to me. I'm the centerpiece of this book. So the structure tells us to look there for the central theme of the book. Jeremiah begins this, this book. And he, he begins by making third party observations about the city. Look at this city. It's in ruins. Look at everyone ignoring this city. He's making uh, these uh, observations. But then he transitions in the, in the book to the city speaking for itself. Speaking out uh, against the, the afflictions and the difficulties. And then he speaks. And then he speaks of the sins of Israel. And then he speaks about God. But he speaks passively. Not to God, but passively about God. Well, we know the Lord has done these things, and, but He's not speaking to God yet. 
Then he begins to address his sins. So the, the structure of the book lays out the poet, Jeremiah. He's saying, look at what Israel... Israel's fallen apart. They're a nightmare. It's kind of like Isaiah. Do you remember Isaiah, the first five chapters of Isaiah? What do, we, what do we find in Isaiah? He spends five chapters saying, this is what Israel has done. Their speech is corrupt. They're lying. They're deceitful. And then in chapter 6, what does he say when he sees the Lord? Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips. He addresses his sin. Jeremiah is doing the same thing. He begins by looking at the city and observing what's taking place and observing the, the causes of this destruction from Israel's perspective that Israel has sinned. They've rebelled against God. And then in chapter 3, he gets to the point where he says, no, no, I am the man. I'm complicit. I'm, I'm a sinner. And then finally, we get to verse 23, that centerpiece of the book where there's a shift that takes place. And for the first time, Jeremiah addresses God. He's spoken about God. But in verse 23, he addresses God. That passage becomes the focal point of the entire book. And there's a reason that it's this passage, verses 22 through 24 that are probably the only passages, the only verses that you know in the entire book of Lamentations. Can anyone else quote me another verse from Lamentations? If you can, you're only proving the rule because there's not anyone in here that can. You're the exception, not the rule. Why do we focus on this? Because it's the center, central message of the book. Verses 22 through 24 in Lamentations chapter 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. We're going to look at four encouragements for the difficult seasons in your life from this passage. Four ways that you can be encouraged. And they're all theological. And the most practical encouragement that you can receive is a theological encouragement. We want to hear, change this action. Do this thing and everything will be better. That's not what the Bible gives us. The Bible gives us something better. Look at the world rightly. See God correctly. And then things will change. You'll see and understand your circumstances better. So the first encouragement for the difficult seasons of your life is the Lord's Chesed. Chesed. The word translated in uh, chapter tw- verse 22, it says the steadfast love of the Lord. It's translated as steadfast love, uh, loving kindness, uh, mercies, compassions, enduring love. None of those capture it. The Hebrew word is chesed. If you want to write that down in your notes, it's H-E-S-E-D in the tr- English uh, transliteration. Chesed. It, it, cap- it captures the idea of God's c- 
covenant faithfulness. His love is enduring, it's steadfast, it's ongoing, but it's not arbitrary. His chesed is always attached to his covenant promises. So when you see steadfast love of the Lord, you should hear chesed. When you see the loving kindness of God or the enduring love of the Lord, you should hear chesed. Some of the older uh, uh, variants of the passage read, Because of the steadfast love of the Lord, because of the chesed of the Lord, we are not cut off. It's because God is faithful to His covenant, and therefore faithful to His covenant people, that we are not cut off, that we are not cut aside. This is Jeremiah, mind you, who has just witnessed... The total destruction of his city. The absolute siege of not only his city, but the nation that he called his home. And he says, God's covenant faithfulness hasn't ended. How can he say that? Everything around screams. The covenant is over. He's done with us. But Jeremiah was a good theologian. He understood that God's judging was an act of his continued covenant faithfulness. If the covenant had ended, they would all be dead. Something would have to happen, like their city would have to be destroyed. The people dispersed entirely and the nation ruined so that it could not be uh, restored, that the records could not be uh, found. Something like that would have to happen to demonstrate that that portion of the covenant had ended with the people of Israel. That's not what happens here. That would happen 600 years later. Jeremiah recalls What God said at the very outset of his covenant promises with Israel. In Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 10, this is the height of the celebration. Man, God is good. Man, it's going to be good. God has made covenant with us. We are his his people. He is our God. Let's go forward. And here's what we find. And when all these things come upon you, The blessing and the curse which I have set before you. You call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. And return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today. With all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all his peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you're outcasts or in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord God will gather you. And from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and more numerous than your fathers. God promises, even in the midst of the celebration, that there will be a time when Israel pulls away from the covenant, where they fail to uphold the covenant, but God will remain faithful. That's what Jeremiah is referring back to. That's where he's placed his hope, with his covenant faithfulness, with God's covenant faithfulness. Dear Saint, you are not an Israelite. As Jeremiah understood the Israelites. You are in fact something better. 
You are of spiritual Israel. You belong to God and He has made covenant promises to you. His covenant promises to you were not made at Sinai, but they were made on Calvary. He has made covenant promises to you. And so of all people, you should find encouragement and strength in the midst of your difficulties through the hased of God, the covenant faithfulness. He is faithful to his covenants and we are partakers of a greater covenant than that which Jeremiah experienced. Second encouragement that we have from this passage is God's unceasing compassion. Listen to what he says. The hased of the Lord never ceases and his mercies never come to an end. That word translated mercies is also uh, often translated as compassions, his tenderness. This is a wonderful statement because we can come away with a wooden picture of God's love toward us by only considering the chesed out of context. We can say, well, of course God loves us. He has to love us. He made a covenant. He made a promise. So he has to. He's obligated to. The only reason he still puts up with us or loves me is because he said he would. What you need to understand first is if that were true, you should shout with joy for the rest of your life. That God would honor his commitment to love you even out of mere obligation. That should be a cause for joy for you. But Jeremiah here and the rest of the testimony of Scripture tells us that he does not simply love his covenant people because he has made a promise and is obligated to do so, but that he has compassions toward them. The Hebrew word means loving affection. It's the most mind-blowing portion of our covenant relationship with God, in my estimation. That God has affections toward His people. Saint of God, washed by the blood of Christ, bearing the name of His Son, that God loves you passionately. That's not the generic God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not that nonsense. It's the rich biblical truth that God has a covenant love for you, but he has an affectionate love for you as well. That is mind-blowing. Genuine affection from the God of creation toward his covenant people. We could stop there, and that would be enough encouragement, but God in His grace gives us more. The third encouragement that we receive from this text is that we have a daily covenant renewal from God toward us. You say, well, where do you see that? Verse 23, They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Here's where it helps to do some good study in Scripture. His mercies are new every morning. Amen? No. 
That's not what the text says. The text says, His hased is new every morning. Because in the Hebrew text, the antecedent of they are new every morning is not his mercies, but his chesed. He renews his covenant toward us. Daily, his covenant is before him. It's not a forgotten aspect. It is always on his mind, and it is always fresh on his mind. You are not forgotten. You are not neglected. You are not at the back of God's mind. You are at the fore of his mind. His covenant relationship with you is new every morning. As if he just sealed the covenant this morning. It's new every morning. That's the promise that Jeremiah gives us. That's the encouragement that Jeremiah gives us. Now, his mercies are wrapped up in his said in his covenant faithfulness. But that renewal, his covenant renewal, daily, that's remarkable. Fourth encouragement for you this morning is that you have not lost your inheritance. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. We cannot neglect our understanding of Israel's relationship to the land, to the promised land. Go back and read through uh, Israel's wandering and Israel's uh, 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 acquisition of the land. And then their uh, relationship to the land once they're there. There is an expectation, a hope for the promised land. And then when they get there and they're uh, uh, putting out tracts of land for everyone, uh, there is a great deal of care and love toward that land because they understood God gave them that land. And it wasn't just a national thing where they were all concerned nationally about this plot of land, but it went down to the individual families. Read through and look at how the individual families were to be um, in relationship to their land. Don't sell your land to a stranger. That land belongs to your family because God gave that land to your family. Did someone have to sell their land to you because they were in difficult time? Don't shame that family by holding that land forever. In the year of Jubilee, give that land back because God gave that land. That is their inheritance. That is what God has given to that family. Read that all throughout the Old Testament. The designation of plots, the preserving of family land, the the year of Jubilee restoring land, and the shame that came upon a family if they let the land that God gave them go to someone else. And now that land has been taken away. Babylon has it, not Israel. And Jeremiah says... My portion is you. It's not the land. A great many people should maybe read Lamentations and understand that that plot of dirt in the Middle East isn't the portion for Israel. It was never meant to be the sole hope of the people of Israel. It's supposed to be God Himself. Jeremiah says, you are my portion. You are my inheritance. You are what I have been given. And that's far greater than any plot of land that I have. Your inheritance 
is far greater than anything Jeremiah experienced. You have a relationship, a covenant relationship with God that is deeper and richer than what Jeremiah, the prophet of God, ever experienced. And you say, how can that be? And I say, how can you not know that? Jeremiah only looked forward to a Messiah. Wondering what he would be like and what that life would look like and and how that would all flesh out. You know exactly who the Messiah is and what he did, what he taught, and how he taught it. What he accomplished on Calvary. You know that. He anticipated. He could see shadows. You see the reality. Jeremiah went to a temple to worship his God and he hoped that he would see the presence of God descend upon the temple. He saw the presence of God depart the temple and wondered if he would ever see the presence of God come back to the temple. Hint, he never did. You, however, are the temple of God because the presence of God dwells in you through the Holy Spirit. The third person of the triune God dwells in you presently. You've experienced something far deeper, far richer than Jeremiah, the prophet of God, ever did. Do you comprehend that? Do you recognize how unique, how powerful that is? What Jeremiah does, though, is he recognizes that he has this great relationship, this covenant blessing with God. And it turns him to praise. He hasn't praised God one time in this book. And now he's going to let out praise for God. For the rest of chapter 3, he just praises God. Decided shift in the tone takes place. You look at verse 25. He just real quickly, he just says, There are three things that are good. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. Says the man who just watched his neighbors eat his children, eat their children. The Lord is good, he says. As he watched countless people starve to death in the streets. As he learned what the taste of excrement was. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. Says that man. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Says the man that is being carted to a foreign land. Stripped of every ounce of dignity that he has. It's good. God is good. It's good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. It's good. How can he say that? Because in the midst of his lament, he recalibrates through correct theology. I would encourage you to read Lamentations. It's five chapters. It's not a long book. Read it and pay attention to the tone And the shifts that take place. 
how Jeremiah starts merely making observations and then speaks for the city, then speaks for himself, then talks about how sinful the city is and introduces the Lord sprinkled throughout. And notice how sparingly he talks about the Lord and how passively he talks about the Lord. And notice the increasing frequency with which he speaks about God. And then notice what takes place as soon as he starts speaking to God. You are faithful. And immediately, his tone shifts to praise. In the midst of horrible circumstances, he's praising God. When we think praise, we're thinking laughter and joy and raising our hands and all kinds of... That is not the picture of praise in Scripture. The picture of praise in Scripture is right Godward thinking and right Godward proclamation. We're saying right things about God from a right heart. Because listen, you can have the biggest smile on your face, you can have a dance in your step, and you can say the right things about God and have the wrong heart. And let me tell you something, you are not praising God. Hear me. You're elevating yourself, you're saying right things, but there is no praise taking place. Biblical praise takes place when you're making right declarations from a right heart. That your words are attributed to God. And you know this intrinsically because you know that when we stand up and we sing together, and you sing and you just kind of mumble, oh, great, oh, God. You, when you're mumbling through, you know, you know in your heart, you're not praising God. You're just walking through doing what you're supposed to do. And you're like Old Testament Israel knowing, hey, listen, if we'll just go sacrifice the sacrifices, make the offerings and, you know, say our words, God will come down. He'll make it all better. Let's just go through the motions and get it done. And Hosea says that's nonsense. God hates that. He rejects that. He doesn't want any part of that because that's not true, genuine praise. And you know that. But when you come with all the baggage that you bring, with all the heartache, with all the strife that you're experiencing, and you come, and in this hour together, you sing loudly, you sing quietly, whatever the case may be, you sing out from a heart that's praising God. You know, you walk out of here differently knowing that you've encountered God. As opposed to coming and sitting in a pew for a few minutes. That's what Jeremiah experiences. Listen, Jerusalem is still sacked. Jeremiah is still in captivity and Israel has still been dismantled. And there are still 70 years of captivity ahead. But Jeremiah praises God. Listen, I don't know what it is that you're going through right now or what it is you'll go through later. It's inevitable. At some point, hard times come. Externally, internally, at some point, hard times come. You don't need practical drivel to get you out of that. You need profound, robust theological truth to calibrate your mind and say, this is true. This is right. When the world presses in on you, remember what we learned from Jeremiah. The Lord has said His covenant faithfulness, His unceasing compassion toward you, His daily covenant renewal 
in your inheritance that is not some plot of land or job or relationship with man alone, but it is, bound, it is founded in him. And listen, these are just the comforts that Jeremiah was able to cling to, and they were more than sufficient. But in true gospel fashion, you and I both know that the New Testament adds even greater comforts to these. Does it not? Just two. I've mentioned them already. Christ has conquered sin and death. Do you understand that? Do you understand that? That that truth alone should change the way you embrace hardship. Christ has conquered sin and death. It's conquered. He's not struggling with it. He's not engaged in a cosmic battle with it. We're not sitting on the edge of our seats wondering how it will turn out. Sin and death are conquered. The enemy defeated. And the second one I've mentioned as well. The Spirit of God. Listen, Saint, if you belong to Christ, the Spirit of God dwells within you. That at this moment, you enter into the presence of God by calling out to God in the name of Christ, who is our high priest mediating on our behalf presently in the Holy of Holies. And you are the temple of God. Because the Spirit of God, the place where God dwells, is within you. That's our encouragement this morning. As we walk through any hardship and any difficulty. May it be to you in the upcoming days. Father, we thank you for the time that you've given us this morning. And we thank you for this wonderful, wonderful gift that is Lamentations. I praise you, Lord, that even in the midst of horrific circumstances, we're shown that you are sufficient, that you are enough And the truth of your covenant faithfulness and your sovereign provision not only should be enough to carry us through, but has proven to be enough. Will you constantly bring our minds back to these truths? We thank you that we have this sure and steady hope. As in Christ we pray. Amen.